Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping this special Medicaid deep dive on Thursday, October 17th at 11 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Margot Sanger-Katz in the New York Times. Hello. Tammy Luby of CNN. Good morning. And Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hello, everybody. So we are pausing from the news this week to do another single-issue explainer, taking advantage of some of our experts at our over-the-firewall Kaiser Family Foundation, again, not affiliated with Kaiser Permanente. In August, we explained all about Medicare. Today, our topic is its sister program, Medicaid, which provides insurance to those with low incomes. We'll have our regular panel discussion, but first, I'm going to play the interview I did with Diane Rowland, who knows more about Medicaid than almost anyone I know. So here Here is the interview, and we will see you on the other side. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast today Diane Rowland. She is Executive Vice President Emerita of the Kaiser Family Foundation, former head of the Kaiser Commission on Medicaid and the Uninsured, and the Medicaid and CHIP Payment and Access Commission, and the person who taught me most of what I know about Medicaid. Diane, thank you so much for coming down to the studio. It's really a pleasure to be with you. So let's start with the very basics. What is Medicaid and who gets it? Medicaid is the fundamental program that offers health insurance coverage as well as long-term care assistance to over 80 million low-income Americans. It's a program jointly operated by the federal government and states, and it provides these services by financing care for some of our neediest citizens. Now, people are very confused about how Medicaid is financed because it is, as you said, partly federal and partly state, but it's different in every state, right? Correct. Medicaid is a joint federal-state program. The federal government sets up broad guidelines for how the program can operate and provides about 55% of the overall financing for the program. States then get to implement the program within those federal guidelines, but have a great deal of discretion over how they actually structure and administer the program. And in return for that, they have to put in some of their own money to match the federal spending. And so both benefits and uh, who's eligible can vary, right, by state? There are some basic rules about who's eligible for the program. Uh, We've made a big commitment to Medicaid as a program to cover the nation's children. It covers about 38% of all American kids today. And so the states are required to cover at least all children up to a a little over the poverty level or a little over $20,000 a year. But then they've been given options to expand coverage above that, especially with the children's health insurance program known as CHIP. And they also have a lot of variability about what they want to cover in terms of individuals eligible under the categories of disability and under some of the long-term care benefits. And benefits can vary too, right? I, I think people are sometimes surprised at benefits that are optional for states. Well, there's a core benefit package that the federal government says if you provide these, uh, we will match your funding for it. And then states can cover a wide range of other services. One of the most interesting optional benefits is prescription drugs. When Medicaid and Medicare were both passed in 1965, 
that coverage for prescription drugs was not considered an essential part of anyone's health care benefit package. And we know today that's not at all true. So you said at the top that Medicaid covers 80 million people now. That means it plays kind of an outsized role in the nation's health care system, right? We, we always think of Medicare as kind of leading private insurance, but it's really Medicaid that pays for a lot of things that private insurance and Medicare don't. You know, one of the myths about Medicaid is that it's just a health insurance program for poor people. And in fact, it's not. It's a health and long-term care financing program that assists people with severe disabilities, children with special health needs, the elderly who have Medicare, 10 million of them, 20% of Medicare beneficiaries depend on Medicaid to pay their Medicare premiums and cost sharing, as well as to provide additional benefits like long-term services and supports that are not covered by Medicare. So it really is not a health insurance program. It's really a safety net for health and long-term care services for some of the most vulnerable and neediest among us. And I want to stop on long-term care for a minute because a lot of people still think that Medicare will pay for long-term care for, you know, if you're a senior and you can't really take care of yourself anymore, that that will be a Medicare benefit, but it's not. You know, Medicaid and Medicare were enacted together, and Medicaid has always had the role of being the kind of gap filler for Medicare, and one of the big gaps was to provide those long-term care benefits. But Medicaid is an income-tested program as opposed to Medicare, so you need to qualify on the basis of a low income to get that service. It gets confusing for people because Medicare does cover short-term rehabilitation and skilled nursing facility care, but those benefits run out fairly quickly, and that's when Medicaid often has to kick in to provide the financing because long-term care is so very expensive. And long-term care consumes a, a majority or the, the plurality of the Medicaid budget, right? I mean, everybody thinks of sort of low-income moms and kids, and they are the, the, the most numerous on Medicaid, but they don't consume most of the money, right? The bulk of Medicaid spending is for the elderly on Medicare and for the populations with disabilities. In fact, Medicaid's most expensive beneficiaries are those who have severe disabilities, including both children and adults. And Medicaid covers about 45% of all of the adults with disabilities in the country whose medical care as well as their long-term care really mounts up for the for the spending. And some of those people actually have private insurance, right, in addition to Medicaid? Often uh, people with very severe and especially children with special health needs can have private insurance, but it doesn't cover the range of rehabilitation services and the range, of course, of long-term services and supports. And increasingly, because Medicaid has shifted from being a primarily covering long-term care in nursing facilities to more community-based care, it's actually picking up a bigger and bigger share of our long-term care spending. A lot of people think of Medicaid, and I blame myself and the rest of my colleagues in journalism as being sort of, you know, health care for poor people. But, and they assume that if you have a low income, you're eligible for Medicaid. And until recently, that has not been the case, right? No, you know, the roots of Medicaid, as often uh, confuses people, really came from the welfare system. Medicaid was originally going to be a program for the aged, blind, and disabled, and for uh, children and families with adults maybe being covered as part of a child's dependency, not on their own. So Medicaid has never been very good for anyone who is not really disabled, but who is an adult without dependent children. And the change, of course, that made that 
different was the Affordable Care Act, which suddenly said you don't need to qualify for Medicaid on the basis of both a category and income. You just need to qualify on the basis of income. But as we know, um, not all states, only 37 states, have actually taken up that option to expand coverage to individuals regardless of whether they're a single adult without dependent children or not, so that there are still states in which there's not any ability to enroll in Medicaid unless you um, have a severe disability if you're an adult, no matter how poor. And there are still people out there who are who actually are eligible for Medicaid but probably don't know it, right? This has always been a problem with any program. You know, I I always say that when you get private insurance through your employer, they ask you if you want to sign up for it when you come in. But as we know, with both the marketplace and with Medicaid, people who don't know if they would qualify or have to go through extra hoops to qualify often don't. So, yes, there are people eligible for coverage that aren't participating. Many of those individuals, though, when they get sick and show up at a hospital, the hospital finds a way to say, you're really eligible for Medicaid. Let's get your bill covered. Well, that's that's to the hospital's benefit, right? It's to the hospital's benefit, but also then it will at least help to uh, give individuals the coverage they need for whatever follow-up care they may need from that hospital. Right. After they leave, they're still on Medicaid at that point. That's how a lot of people end up getting enrolled in Medicaid, right, is that they go and seek health care and they get signed up and then they have it going forward. Well, and increasingly there's been an attempt with the Affordable Care Act to do more outreach and to really um, both simplify the way in which Medicaid eligibility works in, in, in the enrollment process is much more consumer-friendly than it used to be. And it's often been linked to if you apply in the marketplace and you don't qualify in the marketplace to be linked over to Medicaid. So the Affordable Care Act has really done a great deal to help expand the availability of Medicaid and the knowledge about its uh, role. And in fact, many of the people who went from uninsured to insured got their coverage after the Affordable Care Act through the Medicaid program. I, I know in my years of covering Medicaid that when states sort of want to sort of have extra money or feeling flush and are happy to sort of enroll people in Medicaid, that they make the enrollment process easier. And when things are a little tighter and they just assume people not sign up for Medicaid, they make they give them basically more hoops to jump through. They say, you know, you can only enroll during business hours when you might be working um, or you can only enroll, you know, in person instead of by mail or online or on the phone. I mean, there, there is that is that still the case that states make it easier and harder to, to enroll in Medicaid or did some of that get smoothed out at least? In the some ACA? of that some of that got smoothed out because some of the rules got straightened um, out and they applied to states whether they expanded or didn't expand. So the rules under the Affordable Care Act and the eligibility enrollment simplifications um, are nationwide. However, the states can still make you know, the phone doesn't get answered or lay off uh, some of the individuals who work in the offices. And what we often see is in a tight recession year, a state will decide that one of their cutbacks is on their federal or their state workforce. And when they cut back eligibility workers, they slow the process down. And, and make it harder. What's the biggest myth about Medicaid? What do you think that people most misunderstand? I think the thing most people don't understand or or that at least a lot of politicians don't understand is that 
people who have Medicaid coverage actually can get access to health care, and they get really pretty good access to health care, and it makes a difference in their use of preventive services, in their ability to not end up having to go to the emergency room as often or not ending up costing us more, really, when they end up uninsured and in a hospital. How do we know how important Medicaid is to, to patients that, that get covered by it? Well, we, we know from a number of ways. We try to find out what patients think of the Medicaid program, and we find fairly high satisfaction in all of the kind of surveys we do of Medicaid beneficiaries themselves. And increasingly, we've been finding also in much of our polling that when you ask the public about Medicaid, it has a fairly high rating. People think it's run fairly well. Many people, many people know someone who has benefited from the Medicaid program, and I think that's helped to give it a much better standing in terms of public popularity. The political popularity hasn't quite followed the public popularity, and what we saw with the recent debate over should Medicaid be eliminated, block granted, or changed was that the public really wanted the program and knows much of the value it provides. And I think that's because they've seen in a recession the fact that this can help families because, as I said, we have so many of America's children, nearly 40% of children who depend on Medicaid for their care, over 50% of the nation's births are covered by Medicaid, so that that's where young families know about the importance of the program. And then those more into their later years know about it because of the role it plays in the long-term care services and supports for their parents and their grandparents. And of course, the disabled population, that population knows that without Medicaid, private insurance really wouldn't cover the full range of services they need or help with attendant care. So I think it's a program that reaches, as we said, 80 million people. So it reaches into a lot of American households, and it does a pretty good job of connecting people to the care they need at an affordable price. It's funny, Medicare has always been sort of the universally popular you know, health program. And Medicaid has had that stigma because it's health care for poor people. And yet, as you pointed out in 2017, when the Republicans tried to repeal the Affordable Care Act and remake Medicaid, there was this huge backlash, including from some Republicans. I mean, there were Republicans who didn't want to do it. As you mentioned, Medicaid has become increasingly important to, to American families. So were you, I mean, I know a lot of people were surprised by how important Medicaid became in that debate. Were you surprised, somebody who's been following it all these years? You know, I wasn't surprised um, that it had become popular because we'd been watching it trend up in the polling. Uh, 20 years ago, when we asked people what they knew about Medicaid, they confused it with Medicare, and they didn't really know about it providing, as you said, long-term care. They thought that was provided through Medicare. But I think uh, there's been a big increase, as I said, in both the scope of coverage and the knowledge about the program. So when I saw the polling, I thought, you know, a program that people say 60% of the population says they know someone who's benefited from the program, and a majority say, even across political parties, that they think it operates pretty well. I think that was part of helping the debate 
But I also tell you that Medicaid's best allies are the people with severe disabilities and severe health care needs who know that without that program, they would be in desperate trouble. And I think that was part of what turned so many um, people who might have otherwise gone along with the budget-cutting aspect of the Affordable Care Act repeal to say, but wait a minute, we'd be really hurting some really needy people. I think the other thing that sort of people don't necessarily understand about Medicaid is that it has changed a lot over the years. Most people on Medicaid are now in managed care, right? Right. I mean, all the the myth about you can't find a doctor under Medicaid, well, you're in a managed care plan, and it's up to that managed care plan now. Over two-thirds of all the beneficiaries in the country, most of them are the non-Medicare beneficiaries, are in managed care plans. And those plans have a responsibility to both provide the kind of primary care that's needed and to connect people to the physicians and the services they need. Second, Medicaid has changed a lot in terms, as I said earlier, of the way it deals with long-term services and supports. Originally, if you were on Medicaid and you needed long-term care, you ended up in a nursing home, which was part of the required benefit package. Home and community-based services were and still are often optional, but they're becoming increasingly part of the array of services that people are provided. And then we also see in times like today with the opioid addiction problem that this nation is suffering, that Medicaid is on the front line of providing some of the medically assisted treatment and is a very important provider of mental health services, which are also desperately needed by so many people who are not getting that kind of access today. Yeah, there was that irony as Congress was working really hard to put together a package um, to help the opioid crisis that there was so much still effort to cut Medicaid. It's like those two things go together. They go together. And, you know, I think the fundamental other problem that Medicaid has had over the years is that it's a, quote, entitlement program. And there's always been this kind of anti-entitlement wave that goes through and says, you know, it should be more flexible. States should have more flexibility. Well, the reason Medicaid is so important to so many people is that it's both a guarantee to the people on Medicaid that if you meet the rules that are for eligibility and you get on the program, you'll get the benefits you're entitled to. But it's also been an entitlement to states that if they cover these people and they put in their matching funds, that they will be guaranteed that the federal government will match them dollar for dollar. And I think sometimes... And more than dollar for dollar in a lot of states. More than dollar in a lot of states. And I think sometimes that when we talk about, oh, it's such a burden on the states... Um, It is the largest source of federal revenue to every state. And so some of what you also saw about the repeal and the replace debate of block granting it was a lot of states looked at it and said, well, wait a minute, you know, I'm going to lose my way to improve and cover more people when the economy turns down. And we also know that in recessions, often boosting the federal share of Medicaid is a way to help states weather the recessions. So it's an important economic and financing tool in the federal-state relationship beyond its role in health care. So Medicaid plays a, a lot of different roles um, in the health care economy, in the, in the nation's economy. What would happen to, to Medicaid under Medicare for All? This, this has been sort of a question that many people have had. Well, Medicare for All is a broad term and, as we know, has thousands meanings. of meanings. And so if you think about a total Medicare for All, like some have proposed, you would then incorporate all of these benefits 
like long-term services supports that are part of Medicaid and eliminate Medicaid. Uh, but the question there is, if the legislation passed, would all of that happen? And I think a lot of people who have an interest in, especially, as I said, the disability portions of Medicaid and the long-term care are a little leery of rather when push comes to shove, when the legislation, the proposal is one thing, but the actual implementation of the legislation could leave some people with a real shortfall. And so I think that I would say Medicare for All is an undefined concept that can either go side by side with Medicaid as more of a disability and long-term care program, or it can in fact swallow Medicaid up. But how well it will do that job is a big question of how the legislation would be drafted. Right. I was going to point out that I think in, in, there's a House bill and a Senate bill, and one of them includes long-term care, and the other one doesn't. <laughs> so. I, I, I think we have a lot of uh, territory to cover before we know what Medicare for all will mean for anyone. That's sort of an introduction to Medicaid. Diane Rowland, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. It was a pleasure, Julie, always. Okay, we are back with Joanne Kennan, Tammy Luby, and Margot Sanger-Katz. Diane did a really good job at explaining what Medicaid is and how it works, but there are lots of Medicaid stories in the news, and I thought we would delve into some of them. Uh, Let's start with the Medicaid expansion, because we still have, what, 14 states that have not expanded Medicaid, but there's still a possibility that some of that could change, right? Right. Well, it looks like we've had several... In several of the red states where the legislature and the governors have refused to expand, uh, we had ballot initiatives, which was interesting. There were some advocacy groups that took it to the people. So in Maine, uh, I think it was 2017 that they passed there. It was the first, and it passed its Medicaid expansion in a ballot initiative. But the Republican governor, Paul Page, refused to uh, enact it for a very long time, you know, despite a lot of court issues, you know, uh, court decrees, et cetera. And so now the the new Democratic governor has uh, instituted, so Maine now has Medicaid expansion. And then last year, based on the, I guess, success of Maine, you know, the ultimate success of Maine, Nebraska, Idaho, and Utah passed ballot initiatives uh, in some cases, like, you know, pretty, pretty solidly. But yet in many of – in some of those states, the Republican-led legislatures are not quite expanding it in the way that the uh, voters wanted, and that's caused some issues, but we'll see where that goes. But now uh, the Fairness Project uh, and some advocacy groups uh, are looking to do the same in Missouri and Oklahoma in 2020. Joanne, you were saying there there's some some states. There's also some states, I mean, as we speak right now, and this could change by the time people hear this, um, although – Maybe not. Um, North Carolina has a Democratic governor who wants to expand Medicaid, and they have a Republican legislature that does not want to expand Medicaid, and the entire budget is in a meltdown for the entire state. The, the uh, governor vetoed. There's some educational issues at stake, too, but it's largely the Medicaid expansion is the big issue. The, governor Cooper vetoed the budget. Everything is stuck. Um, they're doing piecemeal bills for other issues, but the state budget is still completely... I mean, I don't see how they quite get out of it um, because there's no compromise on the horizon on Medicaid expansion. So 
uh, I'm not sure if there's any other state that's in that much of a meltdown over Medicaid, but it's an ongoing irritant in a number of states. And just to be clear about what this is, this would be an expansion of Medicaid to cover more working age adults. So uh, in many states, if you're a kid, if you have a disability, if you're a poor parent, if you're a pregnant woman, you qualify for Medicaid, but you may not qualify for Medicaid if you're an adult and you're just poor. Obamacare was designed to expand Medicaid to cover everyone below a certain income threshold. And because of a Supreme Court ruling, that became optional for states. So the states that still haven't expanded, it means that people who are poor adults, working class adults, uh, don't qualify for health benefits under Medicaid. They also don't qualify for subsidies often to buy their own insurance in the Obamacare marketplaces. And so this is a population that tends to be uninsured in those states and have often have a lot of medical needs. Well, and it's tens of thousands of people in each state. Right. And speaking of that population, one of the big issues... I think it's 600,000 maybe in North Carolina of, alone. Yeah, it's, it's a lot, a lot. of people. Uh, one, yes, they're they're in what's known as the, the gap Medicaid because gap. this was not mm-hmm. in, intended by the, the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act was supposed to be seamless between the people who qualified for Medicare and the people who qualified for subsidies. Um, but one of, the, one, of the, one of the ways states that some of these red states are thinking about expanding is by instituting work requirements. Um, and that's, again, Again, because as Margot points out, these are the expansion population are mostly people who are, in theory, at least able to work because they're not disabled. Otherwise, they would be automatically eligible. Um, there are the the Trump administration and a number of states think that they should be required to work um, in order to get their Medicaid benefits, but. They, the one state where this was implemented in a fairly large uh, way, Messy way was Arkansas, and it didn't work so well, did it? No, 18,000 people lost coverage within months, and that, you know, I guess sent a bit of a chilling effect out. So there was a judge that had already actually halted the work requirements in Kentucky before it even started in Kentucky, but it did go into effect in Arkansas, which was actually the first state that that actually launched it. And now it's basically on hold in uh, Kentucky, Arkansas, New Hampshire, and now there's a new lawsuit in Indiana. It still takes effect in Indiana, but although Indiana's we'll see. is, uh, it's a little I, softer, <laughs> kinder and gentler, I believe yes. was the phrase that's and I, mostly I think been there used. Are two issues that have been raised about the Medicaid work requirements that are important to think about. So one is the legal issue that the judges are considering, which is whether or not this is something that's allowable under the statute that created the Medicaid program. So that's a legal question, but the judge has found again and again, no, Medicaid is supposed to provide people with access to health care. It is not supposed to be uh, there to encourage them to work by taking their health care away if they don't. Uh, that may continue to be litigated. But then what we saw in Arkansas and New Hampshire and some of these other states are these additional questions about implementation, about how hard is it to set up a work requirement that correctly identifies those people who work and those who don't? And what the Arkansas experience suggested is that most people who are subject to the work requirement either didn't know about it or didn't understand how to comply with it. And so what happened is it's not that 18,000 people lost their health insurance because they weren't working. Some of them were, some of them weren't. But that all of the people who were subject to the requirement essentially almost by default were just getting pushed out because they either didn't know about it or they weren't able to report their work hours easily. And all of these states that have instituted work requirements have put rather large administrative burdens on individual Medicaid beneficiaries to prove that they're working constantly to keep having to report data to the state again and again in order to keep their benefits. And And in in Arkansas, originally, you could only report it online, and lots of people didn't have 
computers or didn't know how to use them. And the computer limited itself, hours. The limited website hours itself too. was also, I, I spent some mm-hmm. time trying to pretend to submit my own hours. And right. it was it, it was not a user-friendly experience. And again, I don't think that's malevolence on the part of Arkansas. But I think even if you really believe in this idea, and even if judges bought into the idea that it was allowed under Medicaid, I think there are these additional challenges for states and how to do it in a way that achieves the goal that they've identified, which is to encourage work, not to just arbitrarily kick people out because they can't figure out how to fill out the form. Right. Yeah, and Arkansas one, did change its reporting mechanisms, but I mean, it's irrelevant right now because the, there's no requirement because it's, it's stopped in court. And the other thing that happened in, in Arkansas is that it was not clear to people that you could re-enroll on January 1. But there is one, so, you know, we looked at the forms and there was like one sentence in a two-page letter about getting kicked off Medicare. There was one sentence about how you could get back Medicaid, <laughs> but how you could get back on. It was not clear that how you do it or how many people read to the bottom of the small print on page two <laughs> or, you know, what, there was very little outreach. It was, and, there was no I, effort to tell everybody, hey, you know. I think of the last numbers I saw of the 18,000 people who lost coverage, like 5,000 people have regained it, which, you know, what the state says is, well, the rest of those people got jobs with health insurance. There's actually right. no data at all to support that because it came right. up in congressional testimony a few months, too. It, it, we just don't know what happened to those people. And some probably got insurance and many probably did not. And what we've seen from the census health insurance numbers that came out last month is that a lot of people lost Medicaid, but did not. But the number of people on employer plans did not go up. So therefore, the problem is, is that the the government's argument is that these people will will be required to work and they'll be transitioned into more independent lives with jobs and then they can get health insurance through their jobs. But, you know, we have some data that shows that low jobs that hire low income, well, sorry, low paying jobs that these people are will be transitioning into don't provide health insurance or the people can't provide it. And or they can't afford right. it. And, and ironically, there are small businesses where, where people can't afford the health care and they're exempt from the mandate that they can, in fact, be employed and get Medicaid. So it is sort of a little bit circuitous where you kick somebody off because they don't have a job and then they do get a job where they can't get employer insurance and they get back on Medicaid. So. Um, you know, it, it's always been somewhat peculiar that some businesses didn't embrace the expansion more because some workers are eligible for Medicaid and it does take the employer off the co- for those workers who are eligible because of their income um, or the size of the business. It, it does help the employer and yet the business community did not embrace this. Yeah, in some states. It, it did in some in states, the, the, like in Georgia, which has not expanded and which is also a state that's in a real bitter fight about it um, and is trying to do an alternative to expansion, um, a lot of the Chamber of Commerce, the local Chambers of Commerce, has have been in favor of it, but not the – it didn't really get – if it got enough of a push from the business community, it would have gotten – it would have changed the minds of some of the legislators. All right. Well, another big issue on the Medicaid agenda is block grants. This idea has been kicking around for a very long time. Basically, states say they will take all of their Medicaid funds in a lump sum that would be less than they would otherwise get from the federal government in exchange for being able to run the program without some of the federal rules and requirements. Um, what are some of the things that states think, think they could waive that would help them save money other than covering fewer benefits or fewer people? which in theory they say they wouldn't do under a Medicaid block grant. It's very hard (laughs) to get Medicaid directors or politicians to be very specific. They like to say in kind of general terms that the Medicaid program is bureaucratic, that it has too many rules, that there are a lot of burdens that are wasteful. And if they could run the program themselves, they could run it more efficiently and do more with less money. When you ask them specifically 
what are the ways that you could save money without either, you know, just covering fewer people or reducing the number of benefits that are currently required? Uh, you just don't get a lot of straight answers. One thing that I hear a lot is that um, a lot of states would like to stop covering non-emergency transportation. So, okay, I mean, like maybe there's some money in there. But I, I do think that dealing with the federal government, you know, it is a bureaucratic system. There's a lot of like reporting and compliance. And, you know, some of those kinds of things I think are a little bit annoying for states. But And I, probably a little bit expensive. Yeah, but I, it's, it's, it is a little bit hard to or at least I have not seen that quantified in a way. And I would imagine even under a block grant, there's going to be some reporting and compliance and follow-up that states would be required to do. Yes, because they'd yeah. still be getting a lot of federal money. Right, although Tennessee, one of the points in their uh, proposal, because Tennessee is now, well, I guess, the first state, Alaska. It's not a pure block grant. Though. Yeah, it's not a real block grant, exactly, or not a, a traditional block grant. But you're anticipating but my next question, which yes. is, what is Tennessee doing? What is Tennessee doing? So te- so what the interesting thing about Tennessee is, is they, they say, okay, you know, federal government give us some money. It's actually more than they are getting now because Tennessee has this you know, special program that they're running. Yeah, Tennessee so, has a long and checkered history with yes. trying to do its own thing on Medicaid. But it interestingly exempts itself from two of the biggest stressors in the block grant argument, which is if the economy turns down. Because, well, okay, let me explain for a second. So the traditional block grant, as you'd said, uh, the state would get a certain amount of money based on the people that are there now, based on the expenses that they have now for Medicaid. And so what Tennessee is saying is, well, if we end up, you know, if the economy turns down and we do end up getting more people on Medicaid, we can get more money, which is not the traditional block grant. And they're also exempting themselves uh, from they're exempting prescription drugs from the block grant, which, again, is one of the most expensive costs and if there is an outbreak of something or there's a new drug that comes out, that could be like we saw for hepatitis stressor. C. Exactly. That, yeah. That that was that or was Zika. That at that or, particular time seemed to be very expensive, eighty four thousand dollars for right. an actual cure. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but it did hit Medicaid programs really hard. Yes. Right. But in and prisons. The, and in exchange for what they want, uh, Tennessee wants to report less to the federal government. And the flip side is you give us a certain amount of money and give us more flexibility. And the flexibility does include not having to do all of this reporting, which will presumably reduce some of the administrative costs. And is Tennessee going to get to do this? It'll end up in court. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a similar set of issues to the work requirements. And, in, you know, you can sort of see the way that the lawsuits are going to be framed, which is the Medicaid statute itself sets up a financing mechanism for how Medicaid is a partnership between the states and the federal government. And it is based on a percentage of the cost of medical services. It's not clear, really, whether that can be waived in what's called an 1115 waiver. So that is what Tennessee is seeking. But the... 1115 waiver itself is not written in such a way that many legal experts think that you can waive the current funding formula. I think in part that's why we've seen Medicaid block grants or Medicaid per capita caps, which are a slightly more flexible form of a block grant, appearing in a lot of Republican health care legislation. I think Republicans in Congress think that an easier way to achieve a block grant is to just make it an option in legislation versus trying to do it through this waiver process where there's more likely to be legal challenges in court. And yet the, the Medicaid block grant that the Republicans put in their repeal and replace legislation in 2017 turned out to be one of the things that killed the bill. 
The Republican I mean, governors split on that. The RGA, the Republican governors are on the record favoring block grants. But when push came to shove, some of them really did not like it very much. And there was a split. I mean, some of them were camped outside the Senate Finance <laughs> Committee's office saying, please don't do that. Um, and ultimately, Medicaid was one of the reasons that the, the repeal died in the Senate. So it's a careful what you wish for. You know, it sounds it's easy for Republicans to talk about how they're going to transform Medicaid and you know be more efficient if you give them the flexibility. But what they sort of want is the flexibility and the money. You know? <laughs> and it's, it's not clear that the administration, while Seema Verma and Alex Azar have said, states come in and propose things because we're going to be open to letting you do what you want. That's actually not been the case. And they've uh, they've turned down Idaho. Uh, and Utah on certain things, particularly partial expansion. Which is where... the next thing we're going to talk okay. about. So should we transition to it <laughs> Yes, now? let's transition. Okay. I was saying. We need to define it. Yes. Another proposal that some states have asked for is something called partial expansion under the Affordable Care Act. That would allow them to provide Medicaid coverage to some, but not all of the population that's not currently eligible. Basically, it would expand Medicaid up to 100% of poverty. So the people that Margot talked about who aren't pregnant women or elderly or people with disabilities, but still have low incomes, they would get Medicaid under uh, partial expansion. But the people between 100 and 138 percent of poverty, and those were the people who were those were all covered in the expansion in the Affordable Care Act. Um, but under partial expansion, those people would just get the subsidies to buy their own insurance on the exchanges, um, which they can obviously do now. It seems to be a logical way to proceed, but there are a lot of pitfalls. There have yes. been both political and legal disputes about why. I mean, the Obama administration had some fighting internally about whether to allow. I mean, the Obama administration was committed to Medicaid expansion. It was part of the ACA. It was mandatory under the original version. And then the court changed that in 2012. So the Obama administration did want to encourage states to to expand. And one thing that was talked about is could you do partial expansion. And the Obama administration, I can't remember whether it was Secretary Sebelius or Secretary Burwell, I think it was Sebelius, said no. And, you know, what I was told at the time is it was both, you know, there was an ideological commitment to covering Medicaid, or for expanding Medicaid as fully as possible. But there was also a dispute about whether the statute actually allows, you know, the way that the ACA statute is written, can you do Medicaid expansion? So, uh, of this or partial, partial expansion. expansion. Right. And, and one of the key points, right. though, is, is that the states want only partial expansion, but they want the enhanced match. That right. is the issue that under Medicaid right. expansion, when you cover this new population of low-income adults up to 138 percent of poverty, you know, starting, I think, next year, the federal government will cover 90 percent of the costs. So, Which is way more than they cover for anything else in Medicaid. Exactly. And so the states are saying, OK, we'll partially expand up to 100 percent, but we want all of that 90 percent. Right. Mi- and you know, so the, 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 the political dynamic is reverse. Here you have an administration that does not like Medicaid expansion as a rule, but it's the flip side of the Obama administration. They don't want to create more incentives for states to do it. At the other hand, they're also having some internal discussion <laughs> and dispute about the legality. Can they? Because Seema Verma had indicated, if you believe the lawmakers in Utah, Seema Verma had indicated that, they, yes, they would get approved for, for partial expansion. So it's a combination of the politics of not wanting it to go ahead and some legal disputes about is it allowed by, you know, if you look at the statute and, and lawyers have divided about that in both administrations. There's also some politics around the fiscal impacts of this. As Tammy said, uh, the way that the Medicaid expansion population is financed is the federal government pays 90 percent of the bill. The state pays 10 percent of the bill. In general, the total cost of covering someone in Medicaid is less than covering them in private insurance. People who are higher income, who are in the exchange, if they get subsidies, 
the subsidies are paid 100% by the federal government. And so the reason, one of the big reasons why states really would like to do partial expansion is they would rather not have to pay their 10% for that subset of the population. They would rather just put that on the books of the federal government. And there are varying estimates, but it seems like overall it will be more expensive for the federal government to pay 100% of the subsidy for people at that level of income because at that level of income, the subsidies are paying really the lion's share of premiums uh, than it would be for them to pay 90% of Medicaid. So if you're a fiscal conservative in the Trump administration, uh, you know, if you're Mick Mulvaney, you don't really want partial expansion because it's just going to shift more of the cost away from the states and onto the federal budget. And I think in the Obama administration, when they were looking at this, they were, they were also worried that if they allowed some states to do a partial expansion, then states that have done the full expansion would want to roll it back. And, and we do the see partial examples expansion. of that now. I think uh, we don't talk about it as much because we talk about this more in the context of red states. But Massachusetts mm-hmm. also has uh, submitted a proposal to CMS. They would really like to expand only to 100 percent and move that slightly higher income income, poor population into the their exchange. But of course, it, it's also shown that poor people, even though they get the subsidies, the subsidies, the ex- subsidies on the exchanges are not as good as Medicaid. And so a lot of people in that range don't expand. I mean, sorry, they don't sign up. And plus, you had at this point where the Trump administration has narrowed the window for signups and has reduced the assistance. So generally, there would not be as many people signing up for exchange policies as there would be on Medicaid. And we should point out that one of the um, benefits of Medicaid is it is the biggest payer of substance abuse treatment in this country. And that was one of the reasons that some of the governors, the Republican governors, I'm thinking, you know, then governor, Ohio Governor Kasich in particular, really did defend um, the importance of Medicaid and Medicaid expansion, because as all of our listeners know, we have a substance abuse problem in this country, and people are waiting to get into treatment. All right. So one more issue. Um, Diane mentioned in the interview that states have lots of, lots of flexibility in exactly how to run their programs and what and who to cover. One of the big ways states control their Medicaid budgets is by making it easier or harder to enroll and stay enrolled in Medicaid. In other words, how often patients have to requalify and how many hoops they have to jump through to do that. Um, traditionally, states have made it harder for people to get on and stay on Medicaid when they are in financial straits uh, and made it a little bit easier when things are more flooded in state treasuries. But things are pretty flush for most states right now. And yet we're still seeing some states trying to kind of turn those dials back to reduce their roles. Do we have any idea if this is a trend or just something that's happening right now? I think that there has always been enormous variation in how states run their Medicaid programs. You know, they each do it a little bit differently and they have uh, their own kind of political and fiscal constraints. The Affordable Care Act was really designed to sort of cut out some of the strategies that states have used historically to try to turn down Medicaid enrollment, these kind of very burdensome uh, paperwork requirements, constantly having to re-enroll, having to provide a lot of documents, having to provide information about your assets. What of the Affordable Care Act basically said was, if you earn below X, you get in. And if the state can verify your income using some data matching system, if they see that you're enrolled in uh, SNAP, the program used to be called food stamps, if they can see your payroll information digitally, that they're not going to make you go through a lot of nonsense. They're just going to automatically find you to be eligible and get you signed up, that you can only be asked to renew in full once a year. And I think that the Obama administration used its kind of soft power to push back when states wanted to make subtle changes that made it harder for people to get re-enrolled. 
The law has not changed, but I do think that states have some states have started to become more aggressive about checking people's eligibility more often, cause you know asking them to submit paperwork more often. And of course, we've talked about the work requirements that are on hold now, but were imposed in some states. I think those are other examples of states kind of asking beneficiaries to do more work to stay enrolled. As part of the um, Kentucky Medicaid waiver, they didn't just set up work requirements, but they set up a whole series of other reporting requirements for beneficiaries. If you change addresses and you don't tell us, you get kicked out. If you your income changes, even if you're still eligible and you don't tell us, you could get kicked out. So there is, I think, a movement to sort of dial up the burdens on Medicaid beneficiaries to demonstrate their effectiveness. And I think there is more interest by the Trump administration in allowing those strategies to move forward. We've seen Seema Verma, the administrator of CMS, uh, talking a lot about what she calls program integrity, asking states to do more checks and to make sure that people who have signed up for Medicaid are really eligible. On the flip side of all that, I do think that there was a huge rush in the rollout of the ACA and a real desire to get people signed up. And it may, in fact, be the case that in some states there are people who are enrolled in Medicaid who earn too much money and should not be eligible for the program. And I think that's part of what Seema Verma and Medicaid are responding to now is saying, could you please check a little bit harder? But the ways that some states are checking harder are having the effect of kicking people out of the program and at the risk of going on for way too long. (laughs) Another thing that happened as a result of Obamacare is that states, in order to change over from the old way they checked people's eligibility to this new way that's based on their income, they had to upgrade their computer systems. Many of the computer systems that states were using were, like, really antique. Like, you know, they're not even what you think of as computers practically. You had to go in person, like, (laughs) once a month in some parts of the country. Some of them was county by county. And some states have just really struggled with this transition. And so what we're seeing right now in a number of states, and I think Tennessee is probably like the most classic example of this, another Tennessee example, is that when they tried to update to a new computer system, it just didn't work at all. And so what they did for a really long time is they just didn't process any renewals at all. They just kept everyone in the program and signed up new people, and they got this kind of backlog of cases Then they thought the computer system was working again, and they started processing applications, and they just had massive disenrollments, lots of people who got kicked out of the program. And the state says that the reason why that happened is because those people actually weren't eligible. Their circumstances had changed, or they had moved out of the state, or whatever. But there is some concern that, in fact, there were a lot of glitches in the system, and there has not been a lot of concern about what's happened to all of those people. Bottom line, Medicaid is really important and really, really complicated. Um, I hope this has helped uh, people understand Medicaid a little bit better. We will endeavor to continue to explain it in the future. Uh, But that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at J. Rovner. I'm at Joanne Kennan. I'm at at Luby, L-U-H-B-Y. At Sanger Katz. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs>